0: Hello, and welcome back for another Toasted Tale with me, Jim. I'm really happy you decided to join me today around the fireside. If you, like me, enjoy hearing stories, then you've come to the right place. I think there are interesting stories in every subject, they're just waiting to be found and shared. In this podcast, we're going to take a random subject and use it as a seed to do some research, and in that time, I'll do my best to find a story that hopefully I and you will find enjoyable. So let's bring in the subject randomizer, give it a spin, and find out what today's topic will be. So as per usual, the subject that's been chosen is random, and the random subject today is the Labour Theory of Copyright. I know, I know, exciting. Now, just for clarity, I am no expert on the Labour Theory of Copyright. You're listening to someone who has never encountered this myself, and also someone who is by no means an expert in this field. I'm just a guy who likes to find interesting stories and learn a thing or two along the way. So as not to keep you all waiting around, I have completed the hour's research on the Labour Theory of Copyright and I'm very excited to share with you what I found. First, before we look into the Labour theory of copyright, I think a bit of background is sorely needed. Let's go back to the Age of Enlightenment, which was a significant time in human history where intellectual and philosophical movements dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. A lot of these ideas centered on the pursuit of happiness, the sovereignty of reason, and the evidence of the senses as the primary source of knowledge and advanced ideals. Some of these ideals were liberty, progress, toleration, fraternity, constitutional government, and the separation of church and state. It was a pretty big deal, and was concerned with a lot of the ideas that we now take for granted in our modern lives. Interestingly, the cause of this cascade of forward-thinking ideas was from a few interesting places. Firstly, it appears that one of the main causes was actually the Thirty Years' War. This was a hugely destructive conflict, mostly fought within the Holy Roman Empire between 1618 and 1648. And just so you geographically understand where this is... This is nowadays Germany, Northern Italy, Austria, Switzerland, and other nearby territories. Now, after military and civilian deaths hit the range of 4.5 to 8 million, and in some areas of Germany, up to 60% of the population were decimated. Some German and other European writers, such as Hugo Grotius and John Comenius, were compelled to pen harsh criticisms of the ideas of nationalism and warfare. At the same time, with the greater European exploration of distant lands, great thinkers' interests were becoming scientific study, looking into other cultures and philosophies, which would have successfully started introducing new thoughts and ideas over how lives should be led to those in high society establishments and cafes all across the European capitals, further encouraging radical and new thoughts for the time. Another reason may have just been that people had had it. They'd reached the breaking point. After centuries of mistreatment at the hands of monarchies and the church, the most intelligent and vocal among everyone, finally decided to speak out against these wrongdoings. It's also in no small part due to a snowball effect of smaller advances happening maybe before what we traditionally know as the Enlightenment, triggering larger ones. And when these people making the advancements become popular and almost celebrity, it encourages more people to go into scholarly pursuits and make their own advancements to show the world that they too have something to offer to human advancement. One of these such advances was a man named John Locke. Born in 1632 in Somerset, England, and attending Oxford to study medicine, he would become one of the most influential Enlightenment thinkers during the span of his life. His works are wide-ranging, but there are two in particular which I want to focus on. First was the foundation of modern philosophical empiricism, which is the belief that all concepts originate in experience. The second is political liberalism, where its central drive is to protect and enhance the freedom of the individual, and that the lack of these freedoms are the central problem to politics and life. His political thought was grounded in the notion of a social contract between citizens, and in the importance of toleration, especially in the matters of religion. And it was a good thing too, as this was at a time where religious tensions throughout Europe weren't just ready to blow, but were actively exploding all over the continent. You know that 30-year war we mentioned earlier? Well... One of the main reasons that millions of people were dying was because Catholics and Protestants were not happy with each other and they were killing each other left right and center. A little closer to Locke's home, in England there was a glorious revolution which took place in England between 1688 and 1689 where James II, king at the time, who was a overt Roman Catholic, was coming into contention with some of the other prominent faiths in their country. A number of important individuals decided that something had to be done. And so they invited William of Orange from the Netherlands to come over to England with an army and redress the nation's grievances. Now with William being a staunch Protestant, this of course came with some problems. And on November the 5th, 1688, he landed in Brixham on Torbay and advanced slowly to London as support fell away from James II, leading eventually to him fleeing to France. William of Orange didn't take the kingship though. He settled with Parliament to form a new way of moving forward, and this settlement marked a considerable triumph for people like John Locke. He contended that the government was in the nature of a social contract between the king and his people represented in parliament. And the Glorious Revolution permanently established parliament as the ruling power in England. And if that isn't a win for breaking up the major power structures of the time and improving individual freedoms, then I don't know what is. Additionally, though, another moment in time that affected well, people at the time, but continues to do so now, was how Locke's teachings influenced the United States' Declaration of Independence, which at its heart was a rejection of the foreign rule of Britain in favour of control for themselves. And most scholars today believe that Jefferson derived the most famous ideas in the Declaration of Independence from the writings of philosopher John Locke. And it was in fact Locke who wrote that all individuals are equal in the sense that they are born with certain inalienable natural rights. That is, rights that are God-given and can never be taken or even given away. And among these fundamental natural rights Locke said are life, liberty, and property. So all this to say that John Locke was a pretty big deal, and a lot of what he taught became very influential. And one such theory he proposed leads us very nicely to the star of today's tale. This is his labour theory of property. In this he asserts that property originally comes about by the exertion of labour upon natural resources, and that as long as, quote, there is enough, and as good, left in common for others, end quote, which effectively means as long as you don't take everything, the whole pie, that when a person works that labor that they did enters into the resources that were commonly and freely available and thus that object becomes the property of the person who put the labor into it. It effectively means that people should be able to own the fruits of their own labor. Now The Labour Theory of Copyright is similar to this and it bases its assertions on similar grounds, but it asserts that people should be able to own the fruits of their own mental labour as well as what they can produce physically. This means that intellectual property can be viewed as your own as much as a piece of land you farm could be as well. This is a very important distinction because it meant that any work you complete which is of a less tangible and physical nature, can become your asset. And creative pursuits following these ideas can be protected and licensed so as to earn an income off it and ensure that no unscrupulous types can steal your work. This theory likely was one of the initial seeds that led to modern copyright laws and allowed millions of people around the world to protect and license their original ideas and enjoy the rewards from their hard work. Now, copywriting is by no means a perfect system. On one hand, when you copyright an idea it can remove the ability for the many to utilize that idea for the greater good, but also enforcing copyright law can be very tricky. But the idea of allowing an individual to have the right of ownership to their own ideas and creative endeavours is one of the many gifts that the Enlightenment and John Locke were able to pass down to us, and we are still, today, able to reap those benefits. Sometimes when I get subjects on this podcast, I can feel like Alice, on the edge of the rabbit hole, about to fall in and discover this grand world. And the labor theory of copyright was one of those times. When it first landed on this subject, I was like, okay, well, I'm sure I can find something about this. But then it took us back to the Enlightenment and to John Locke, and we are able to investigate a whole load of big human events that happened in the past that led to ideas that still have impacts on us today. And this is why I love doing this podcast, because... When I woke up this morning, I had no idea I'd be grappling with these subjects, which is awesome. So I want to thank you for spending your time with me today for a Toasted Tale Around the Fireside. I hope you enjoyed learning a bit more about the labour theory of copyright and everything that surrounds it. If you did enjoy listening to this podcast and want to know when new episodes are released and you can do so by following me on Twitter. My handle is at PodcastTale. On there is where I put all of my new episodes and anything else I find interesting. So follow me at PodcastTale for more. If you'd like to join me again for a story around the fireside, then I'll be back here every Tuesday and Thursday at GMT. Your company would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you want to support the show, then commenting, liking, or sharing it with the people you care about would go a long way to supporting the flames of the Toasted Tale and make them burn even brighter. I hope you all have a lovely rest of day, and I will speak to you all again soon for another Toasted Tale Around the Fireside.